Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Mary Cranston, board chair of the Commonwealth Club and firm senior partner and chair emeritus of Pillsbury, an international law firm. It is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is speaking today about sustainable energy. Since taking office in 2003, Governor Schwarzenegger has signed numerous laws that have put California on the leading edge of national and international efforts to create a new low-carbon global economy. In 2006, Governor Schwarzenegger signed a law paving the way for a million solar roofs in California by 2018. The next month, he signed the world's first comprehensive law to reduce carbon emissions in a quantifiable way using regulations and markets. And in 2007, California created the world's first standard for low-carbon transportation fuels. Earlier this year, recognizing that climate change is a global problem, he reached out to Mexico's border states and linked them into the California Climate Action Registry, which measures carbon emissions. Please join me in welcoming California's Governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, thank you very much for the nice introduction, Mary. Where did she disappear? Okay. Oh, there you are. Okay. So well, it's nice. Thank you very much for the nice introduction. It is nice to be back here and to be invited back to the Commonwealth Club. And this is, of course, my third time. We just talked about it out there. It's my third time that I have been here, and it is, of course, always an honor to be speaking here today. And I think that the Commonwealth Club, I have to say, maybe always brings me good luck. Because the, last, the first time I was here, we were talking about after-school programs. I was talking about the importance of after-school programs, how we have to create a positive alternative for our kids rather than hanging out on the street corners after 3 o'clock and getting involved with gangs and violence and drugs and all of this. And then I was uh, you know, going around the state talking about Proposition 49 to create an extra $428 million for after-school programs. The reason why I'm saying that you brought me good luck is because that proposition won that following September in 2002 with 57% of the votes, and now we have this additional $428 million uh, for our kids uh, in California. So thank you. And of course, uh, you know, uh, I like coming back because I'm always impressed also with your environmental activism and, of course, with your distinguished history. I mean, you're now 105 years old. By the way, before I go on, I just want to say I see Willie Brown standing, sitting here, who is one of our great, great political leaders. Let's give him a big hand for being out there. Terrific. Always nice to see. But anyway, I was just saying, I said, Willie, this club is 105 years old. It's almost as old as you are. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually, this is a long time if you think about it. It's almost as long as it took us to get our budget done. Uh, that I know for sure. But I also love coming back to this uh, club here is because, you know, that you had also a speaker one time, Teddy Roosevelt here, who is one of my heroes. Of course, he was speaking about environmental stewardship in 1911. So it's really amazing. And here we are a century later, and you have another Republican talking about the same subject and pushing the same ideas uh, on this great stage here. So it is uh, really great to be here. Of course, when I was back in Austria and a kid, I tell you, not in my wildest dreams did I ever think about that's what I will be doing when I grow up. Uh, I thought about coming to America and making millions of dollars and uh, becoming a movie star and a bodybuilding champion and all of those things. But that one day I will be the governor of the great state 
of California talking about the environment. That's not what I envisioned. It just shows you that sometimes reality goes way beyond, actually, your dreams and your visions. But, uh, you know, it's really interesting of how I got here because I originally wanted to come by here and talk about Proposition 11, redistricting, and talk about how important it is that we take the power from the politicians of redistricting and give it back to the people. But then, as I told this... Thank you. But then when I mentioned that to Matt David, my communications director, I said, I want to go back to the Commonwealth Cup and talk about Proposition 11. Why don't you schedule something? He says, well, it's interesting you say that because the Commonwealth Cup has actually invited you to come and give a speech here, but not about that, but about you know, the AB32 that you've signed two years ago. They want to celebrate and do a two-year anniversary. So I said, well, you know, forget about Proposition 11. This time we go back, or maybe we do a, you know, one a week later. Who knows what? But, I mean, <laughs> let's talk about the environment. This is really terrific because this is something that I love talking about anyway, and it's something that I'm very proud of, having accomplished uh, the signing of AB32. But before I want to talk about AB32 and about this great, great, uh, remarkable accomplishment, Obviously, we have to give credit first to the people that were really responsible for that because a lot of times I get the credit and people say, this governor has pushed for global, fighting global warming, but you don't do that alone. Nothing we do is alone. We always have a lot of people there that are helping us. And so I want to say, first of all mention our former assemblywoman, Fran Pavley. I invited her to come here today. She did not uh, make it because she's busy campaigning, but uh, you know, she wrote the bill right along with so many other outstanding environmental laws so she is very passionate about, you know, protecting the environment. And so I wanted to mention her name. And also Assembly Speaker Fabian Nunez, who has been a great partner throughout the years that I've been governor. And uh, he was the one that was responsible helping push it through the legislature. He's also very passionate about uh, protecting the environment and has been a great partner. So I wanted to mention those two. And also Terry Tamanen, who is sitting right here in the front row, who has been my personal advisor and has been the head of the EPA and was really right there when we were negotiating this and was a great, great help. So let's give all three of them a big hand of applause for making this happen. There's one other person that I want to uh, point out, and this is Tony Plea, because there were in the beginning the debates should we have just a cap on our greenhouse gas emissions or should we do cap and trade? Some people were against the idea of doing cap and trade. I was for it, but there were a lot of people against it. And so he came to California for an environmental conference, uh, Tony Blair, and he talked a lot about the importance of cap and trade. And I think because of that, it pushed it over the top so that we now have cap and trade. So he was very re much responsible for that. So we want to thank also him for the great assistance that he gave us. Now, I signed this bill, of course, two years ago tomorrow. And it was actually not far away from here. It was on Treasure Island. And I tell you, it was one of the most ambitious global warming law ever signed. Uh, the first in America to impose mandatory cap caps on greenhouse gases. It calls for 25% reductions of greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2020. And if that's not enough, an additional 80% by the year 2050. And of course, we still have a lot of work to do which is why you will never see us resting on our laurels, because we know and we are very much aware of that everyone has to work very hard. As a matter of fact, next week, uh, the California Air Resources Board lays out its framework for how we expect to meet all of those goals that we set, because we all know it's one thing to set goals, but it's another one to follow through. Secretary Linda Adams and also Resource Board Chair Mary Nichols have done a lot of the heavy lifting. As a matter of fact, uh, we have Linda Adams with us here. Where's Linda Adams sitting right here in front? Let's give her a big hand. And Mary Nichols is in New York, again, very, very busy to go and uh, fight uh, global warming and uh, doing a lot of work for us, so I'm glad that she's back there and working with New York. But in any case, I just wanted you to know that these are also two people that have been very, very uh, hardworking. And before we, of course, we can get started to reduce greenhouse gases, you must first measure, measure the greenhouse gases coming from literally thousands of different sources. Because if you don't measure, and if you don't know how much are we emitting now, 
You don't have anything. This is like going on a diet. You first want to step on a scale and know how much do you weigh right now. I know how difficult it is for a lot to look down and see those numbers. But let me tell you, that's the only way you have to measure. You have to see the numbers, and then you can make a goal and say, I want to lose 20 pounds, and this is what I need to do. And the same is with greenhouse gas emissions. So think about it. Unlike any other source of pollution, almost everything that we do creates greenhouse gases. Everything has a carbon footprint whether it is the cars that we drive, the food that we eat, the milk that we drink, or if it is off-road vehicles or farm equipment, or if it is a cement factory, or if it is lumber, lights, water heaters in our homes, and the list goes on and on and on. And I tell you, we had to measure literally everything, one source at a time. That was a huge job, but it was just the beginning. Then we had to go and set the goals to reduce greenhouse gases source by source, and figure out exactly how to make those reductions and how to make our goal become a reality. And Linda and Mary both, you know, were working here on, on, in new territory because no one else has done that except in some European countries. So they brought everyone together. They reached out to all the stakeholders and they looked for help and for advice. They went to businesses, they went to universities, to state agencies, community groups, private citizens, everyone. And they got an endless amount of calls and emails, as a matter of fact, 42,000 individual comments. And it was really great to see of how much people were interested in it, businesses and various different groups. Everyone participated in this and was excited about helping to make this happen. The bottom line is, as America and as China and other nations argue of who should go first when it comes to getting serious about global warming, California is already there, and we do the work. We are We are already a model for the rest of the world. Now, even though when you look at the globe, you will see California is a very tiny spot. But I can tell you, when it comes to the power of influence that we have, we are an equivalent of a whole continent because we have had a tremendous impact on the rest of the world, and the world has responded. And also here in America, we have seen the impact. Ten other states have immediately joined us in enacting the laws just like ours because we know that Washington is asleep at the wheel. We cannot look for leadership there. This is why it was important that we reach out. And we started out all alone. There was no one else there. And now another 20, 20 states are heading exactly in the same direction. And we have partnerships now with Western states, with Northeastern states, with Canadian provinces, and with European nations. The Western Climate Initiative that we began released its cap-and-trade plan earlier this week already. And the Northeastern states started their own cap-and-trade just yesterday. So this is really great progress. And... We shook up the climate change debate so much so internationally that on July 2007, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon came to California to see firsthand of what kind of action we are creating. And I remember when he came here, he was shocked to see the kind of progress that we have made here in this state and also the huge expansion on green technology that he has seen here and have taken him to various different places all over the state. So he was so excited that he actually invited me to give a speech at a special, at a special UN session on global warming a few months later. Now imagine, here is California inspiring the rest of the world at the UN, sitting 190-some countries sitting there, and we are talking about what we are doing in California. I was never more proud of our state. I was really a proud governor, I tell you. Now we have something even more exciting that we are working on right now. My office, as I said, we are not resting. Uh, my office is putting the finishing touches on plans for a Governor's Global Climate Summit in November, right here in California. We will bring government officials to California from around the world, from provincial governments in China and India, from European nations, from Australia, from Mexico, Canada, and every governor in America will be invited. And the goal is very simple, to form a broad international alliance so that when the Kyoto negotiators start their work in Poland this December, they will have our summit as a framework. Like I said, we are not waiting for the federal government. We are continuing on push forward because we must. Thank you.
We have reached a tipping point on the environment, and California is at the forefront, as we expect to be. Now, I realize there's a lot of people also that are negative about that, and they say we should not do that. They say that we should slow down, that we can't afford the attack on global warming. We should wait, that it is too expensive, that the economy is right now down, that it's in turmoil, this is not the right time, and all of those kind of excuses we hear. But the problem is, as far as I'm concerned, too serious, and the opportunities are too great to get stuck in that kind of short-term thinking. That is why I also refuse to let the legislators use delaying implementation of AB 32 as a bargaining chip in our budget negotiations. That was not going to happen on my watch, so we sent that bad idea to the scrap heap and said, hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> the truth is that it is far more econo- there's far more economic opportunity in fighting global warming than there is economic risk. I was thrilled recently when the California Air Resources Board came out with that same conclusion. The board's economic analysis compared the cost of doing nothing with the cost of implementing AB 32. It said that AB 32 will boost California's economy by $27 billion and will create an additional 100,000 jobs. As you can see, that we can, in fact, do both. Uh, protect the environment and also protect the economy. Our airport also issued a report on health impacts, and of course that also has impacts financially. By 2020, with clean air, we will have 300 fewer premature deaths, 900 fewer incidents of asthma and lower respiratory symptoms, and 53,000 fewer work loss days. We are, ladies and gentlemen, on the right track, not just for California, but for the United States. As a matter of fact, the famous journalist Tom Friedman uh, from the New York Times says, if global warming is a hoax, which it is not, doing the right thing to fight it will make us more secure, economically stronger, and also healthier. I agree, I agree with everything he says, and I say, let's go full speed ahead. America should not wait for other countries to go first. America should always lead like we have done so in the past. We did not wait when we wanted to put a man on the moon. Maybe we didn't wait for any other country and say, you put a man on the moon first and then we go. We didn't say, you go first and create the best university system in the world. We did it first. We didn't go to other countries and say, you put $3 billion up for stem cell research. We went first with that. And so the list goes on and on and on. California will not wait. America should also not wait. That's why we in California are attacking global warming on every front possible right here at home. We are building a million solar roofs, which will cut greenhouse gas emissions as much as taking a million cars off the road. And we are enacting the world's first low-carbon fuel standard. And we are building our hydrogen highway. And we are enacting our green building initiative. And we are pushing towards a 20% of renewable energy by the year 2010 and 33% by the year 2020. And we're working to get more renewable energy on the grid where we can use it. So those are just all the kind of things that we are doing and we're pushing forward on every single front. But on top of that, I have some great news. This summer, we had another exciting breakthrough when we put together a package of incentives to lure Tesla Motors and its electric car manufacturing plant back to California from New Mexico. You see, they already almost went to New Mexico, but then we brought them back. The company just announced that... The company just announced they will build the zero emissions electric vehicle right here in California, as a matter of fact, in San Jose. They expect 250 million investment and 1,000 new jobs. Now, here's a company Think about this. Here's a company that has never done a car before, never produced a car, and they've done the first car all electric, no emissions. And Detroit still cannot do it. Think about that. So this is why Detroit is always very upset when I talk about that and very upset for each time that we have new kind of guidelines and caps and greenhouse gases and all those kind of things. So matter of fact, there are billboards up there in, uh, in Detroit that says, you know, Schwarzenegger to Detroit, drop dead. 
But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, Arnold of Detroit, get off your butt. That's what I'm really saying to them. And I tell you that I am, of course, I was one of the first owners of a Tesla because it is so nice when you sit in this sexy car and you drive from zero to 60 in 3.9 seconds, which is faster than a turbo Porsche. And there is no engine sound, absolutely none. No greenhouse gas emissions, but a lot of people that are excited to buy that car. This is what I like about it, and this is why I say with bold action, great ideas, and the commitment to follow through, we will protect and enhance both the environment and also our economy. And California will lead to a brighter day for everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. And now... We're going to do a little chat. That's you have good. some questions. Maybe the audience has some questions. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Our thanks to uh, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger for his comments today here at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, Vice President of the Club, and I will conduct the question and answer period. Governor, thank you for coming again to the Commonwealth Club. We have a lot of questions, um, and first, before we get to energy and environment, a lot of the economy is on people's minds a lot, and we have a number of questions here uh, that are along the lines of, how do you recommend Congress handle the current economic crisis? Uh, should they intervene? Uh, sh should there be a buyout? And should there be more regulation of the financial? We will wait a second while these guys. Well, first of all, let me just say that every time there's a crisis, we learn, and each crisis is always different. It's no different than we have, when we have fires in California, which, you know, is always a disaster. It's a crisis. But each fire is different. Each situation is different. Like the last time we had all of a sudden, because of uh, dry lightning, 2,000 fires at the same time, which we, we have never had in California. So it was a different crisis, and we learned from that again. How do we get enough manpower? How do we confront this kind of challenges? And the same is also with the economy. Every time you will see a, a situation like this arise, it will be different. It will be a different reason why. And uh, the, I think that legislators will learn from that. But I think it's inevitable that you have to intervene, that you have to help as the government, even though there's some people that think that the market would take care of itself. But you know something? There's sometimes where government is needed, and the government and the private sector working together can be the ultimate of success. And I think the important thing is that, that we don't use the taxpayers' money and the taxpayers don't get anything in return, and it all goes you know, to some of the rich executives or people that are going to benefit from that. I think it's important that the taxpayers, in turn, will get something back in return when they go come back again, those companies. But I think intervening and helping those companies is a good idea because we got to ultimately not look what is a, what is a Republican idea or a Democratic idea, but to do again what is best for the people in America and how do we get the jobs back, how do we build, rebuild those companies, and how do we eliminate the mistakes that were made. So it sounds like you support uh, the government taking an equity position in these companies so that the, the uh, taxpayers actually have a, a shareholder. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And as a matter of fact, we have David Crane here, who is sitting here, who is actually in charge of California's uh, job creation and economic development. David, do you want to say uh, quickly something? Because you have just talked to Warren Buffett and all those guys in Washington that maybe you want to fill them in. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Governor. Um, we believe uh, strongly that uh, the government has to take an active role in this case. And by doing so, uh, the taxpayers will not only have a fully liquid and operable financial um, uh, system in the United States, but can also do so in a way where it can potentially be profitable for the taxpayers to do so. I think people have to keep their eye on the ball here, which is that we need fully functioning financial systems in our country. We need liquidity so people can get automobile loans, can get credit card loans. Uh, and for that to happen, the federal government has to step in, take a position in some of these mortgages that otherwise can't get pricing, uh, provide that liquidity, and ultimately uh, provide uh, some profit potential for the taxpayers. Thank you. 
A number of questions asked uh, along these lines. How will the events of the past weeks, the bailout on Wall Street, the continued problems with the state budget, impact the green tech uh, and environmental future? Will, will we be able to fund innovation? Will California be able to fund a high-speed rail system if, there's, if the economy is in crisis and there isn't federal money coming to fund these things? Well, first of all, I'm a big believer that we should not confuse the two things that are good for the future to let them be held back because of a current budget crisis. Because budget crises in California come and go. We have seen them over and over again, and they will come and they go. And this is why we had budget reform, so that we don't have those kind of crises in the future. But just because we had a problem this year and have a $15 billion structural deficit does not mean we should not go ahead and building for more water because we need water. We need above and below the ground water storage. We need to fix the delta. We need to provide more drinking water. We have an increasing population in California. We can't get stuck with a water infrastructure that is 40 years old because 40 years ago we have 18 million people. Now we have 38 million people. There's a difference. So we must move forward because even if we make a decision today, it would take 20 years to build those projects. So 20 years from now, you can't go and look back and say, I think they had a little budget problem or they had a $15 billion deficit. That's why I decided not to build the water project. So we got to move forward with this project. The same is also with the high-speed rail. Just because we had a problem with the budget does not mean that people should vote no on the rail system. We need high-speed rail. Our rail system in America is so old. We are driving the same speed as we did 100 years ago, the same system as 100 years ago. If we want to have mass transportation, we should modernize those things. We should do what other countries do. I mean, all over the world, we see high-speed rails that go 200 to 300 miles an hour. We should do the same thing in this country, and we should, especially in this state. We should start here and show again, show leadership, and show the rest of the, uh, the country how to do it. So I think we should go ahead with all of those projects. You mentioned the, some of the regional uh, trading regimes for, for carbon emissions. There's one in the West and Canada. There's also one in the Northeast that took some step forwards recently. How do you see these markets coming together and forming a national market for trading carbon emissions in the United States? And when will that happen? Well, uh, you know, it will happen as time goes on. But, I mean, I think that the important thing is that we create an international system. They have a trade and a cap and trade system in Europe. We are now creating it all over the United States in the northern uh, part also in the northeastern part, so that everyone can get linked together. That is the idea, because I think that there's so much potential there uh, with the cap and trade where we can really meet the goals of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, but at the same time go and not ruin some of the businesses that maybe cannot make it. Uh, there is, for instance, we are going through this right now. We want to, for instance, go and, and have people switch out their vehicles, their uh, you know, construction uh, vehicles. Well, that's easier said than done because there are some that have just bought last year construction equipment or a vehicle that cost a million dollars. They used this equipment for 30 years. Now we are telling them that in the next four years you have to switch it out. That's impossible for them. So they should have a chance to then trade with someone else that maybe is far ahead of them. They can do the, the, the cap and trade system where everyone can benefit from it. So that's what we want to accomplish. One question. There's some more cards for you here. You. Uh, yeah. Maybe you can ask two questions at the same time. Juggling, yes. Uh, the, the value of carbon credits distributed under cap and trade will be huge. What are your top priorities for using this revenue stream? Where's the money going to go from trading these carbon credits? Well, they go, uh, you know, to people. It, it's, it's trade. People buy it. So if someone cannot make it, that he will go and uh, buy it. And then someone that has... Uh, made it earlier, we get the financial benefit from that. So I think that's what it is all about, that it evens it out and you still can accomplish those goals. What would be your advice to the new presidential administration in Washington, whoever it is, uh, for advancing the environmental, this trading regime and envir the environmental goals that you espouse? Well, I think that uh, one thing we know for sure, and that is it doesn't matter really who is going to get in, it's going to be better than this administration. When it, comes, uh, when it comes to the environment. Um, I think that the important thing is that whoever is going to be the next president has specific goals in mind and communicates that with the people of California. 
I mean, I see this pretty much like in the 60s when Kennedy said we want to land a man and a moon. And he is, this, is, this is what's going to happen this decade. He didn't know exactly how, but he laid out the goal and he challenged everybody. And I think this is what we need to do here. We've got to go and say we want to have a certain reduction on greenhouse gases. We have to set goals. We want to make sure that there's a goal on renewables because America is only 2% of renewables right now. We in California, we have now around 14%. Our goal by 2010 is 20%. Like I said earlier, by the year 2020, 33%. America can do that. It's easy. We have so many windmills that we can create and so much renewable energy that we can create. It is possible, but we need to set those goals. And uh, there's many ways of going. We also have to go and find ways of finding uh, uh, alternative fuel because I think what we have seen in these last few months when the oil prices went up, of all the different things that they have thrown around, this is not going to go and lower the fuel prices, all the ideas that we have heard. The oil prices, you know, came down because of the people, people power. And I always said that the only one that can bring the oil prices down is the people. They started driving less. They do more, did more carpooling, and they used more public transportation and all this. And immediately the price came down from $150 a barrel to $120 a barrel. So people have much more power in this way than the politicians. They've talked about things that will maybe have an impact on the oil prices, maybe in five or ten years from now, but not right now. And of course, we have to set those scores. What do we do and what kind of alternative fuels that we are going to create? And not pick winners. It's another important thing. Because up until now, we made a mistake by saying, you know, corn-based fuel, ethanol, is the winner. And therefore, we are subsidizing that. But that's a big mistake. I think we should let the market make that decision. You mentioned specific goals. Al Gore has come out and said America should be entirely renewable within 10 years. Even some environmentalists think that that's ambitious and not possible. Is that too ambitious? Well, I think that you can see that he's not anymore, you know, uh, in Washington as a senator. Because if he would be, he would pick something that is doable. Because, uh, you know, it's what uh, one of the great leaders, Bismarck, said uh, that uh, politics is all about the art of possible rather than the art of perfect. And I think that that will be impossible, what he said. But I think, like I said, we must shoot for great goals and we must shoot for at least 20% of renewables because that's what European countries are doing. And they're doing it successfully. And I tell you that when you just talked earlier about green technology, the only area that is really booming right now is green technology in California. That is still creating jobs. That is really expanding jobs and is expanding opportunities. And there's a lot of venture capital flowing into California. As a matter of fact, 40% of the venture capital in the United States is coming to California because we are really the number one in the development of green technology. So I think that is where we have to expand, and this is the, the, the direction that we have to go. Uh, drill, baby, drill became an, a, a sort of a chant uh, a couple of months last month at the Republican convention, and polls show that uh, about half of Californians support some offshore drilling. Even Democratic politicians, Senator Obama, McCain, have softened their position on drilling. Uh, this question from the audience says, will you stay true to your belief not to allow offshore oil drilling, drilling off the coast? Well, let me tell you. Um... I remember very well in 1968 when I came to California. And I walked around on Muscle Beach. <laughs> and every single time I walked around on Muscle Beach, my feet were stuck with tar. And I saw dead birds lying around. It was exactly at the time when we had the big oil spill. So I remember that. So I think the people of California don't want to go through that again. I think we must protect our pristine coastline with one of the most beautiful coastlines in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that someone cannot do an initiative down the line and that the people will vote for oil drilling off the coast or anything like that. I'm just saying that I have promised during my campaign when I ran for governor in 2003 that I would do everything in my power not to expand, but actually to reduce or get rid of offshore drilling. And I will keep my promise to the people of California. Do 
due to global warming, uh, oil in the Arctic region is becoming more accessible. Uh, and there's some skirmishes up there with Russia and Poland show some Americans support uh, drilling up there. Would you say the same thing about drilling in the Arctic or other places away from California? Well, first of all, I'm not as much an expert in uh, what's going on up there. And can we find more, more places up there to drill? One thing we know for sure is that we should drill, but we should not think that we should drill our way out of this problem. I think that we should drill to be energy independent, not to rely on the Middle East and to always get into conflicts in the Middle East just because of the oil and protecting our interest in all of those things, because that we have done for the last 50 years or even more. I think we can do better than that. I think that the, the, the trick is to find alternative energy, alternative fuel, and I think we also should, besides just the, the drilling idea, we should also look at the nuclear power. Uh, we should look at what is uh, you know, financially more feasible and safer Uh, looking at renewables versus nuclear power, or maybe do both, because the technology of nuclear power has improved, and what to do with, uh, with the, uh, you know, um, the leftovers, is it, do we still have to destroy it, or can we do something and use it again for energy? Um, I think that all of this ought to be looked at. I say let's look at everything, get all the information in front of us, and look at all of those things and see what is safe and what is you know, financially doable and what will reduce greenhouse gases. Some of the advocates of alternative energy say that forms like nuclear have bigger government subsidies in terms of uh, risk protection, et cetera, than renewables. So what can be done to put renewables on an even field with coal and fossil fuels that have a long history of support from the government? Well, I think that uh, one thing we know for sure, and that is with, uh, you know, when it comes to coal, like you're saying, the only way that I would allow to have coal uh, be produced is clean coal, because there's a way of now reducing Uh, you know, coal, the, the, the greenhouse gas output by 40% or more. So I think this is the direction to go. We still can use coal, but let's lose, uh, use clean coal. And there will always be areas where you need government subsidies. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think the important thing is for government not to pick, like I said earlier, winners, but to go and look at the whole portfolio. And maybe it needs a combination of different things, but not to exclude any, anything, because that's what we've been doing up until now. And it drives me nuts when I go over to France and they get 80% of their power with no greenhouse gas emissions whatsoever from nuclear power. And they've been safe, they've been handling the right way, and they're building some more. So I think that's, we should look at that again and revisit it. Would you go so far as to say no new coal plants until they're clean? I would say that we should not have any coal plants that are not clean. I think everyone should make an effort, and we should invest in cleaning those coal plants so that we can reduce our greenhouse gases. Nothing will happen from one day to the next, but I think that, again, we should have a goal on how to do that. This question is, what do you think about the Pickens plan to develop wind power and generate 20% of energy to free, nat uh, to free up natural gas for cars? Well, again, I am not going to comment today on uh, if I'm endorsing an initiative or not. I'm going to do that in uh, you know, a few weeks from now. Uh, but one thing we know is that uh, wind uh, and solar and all of those kind of um, you know, en energy sources are very important. I think we should have all the various different energy sources. One of those is, is hydrogen. Uh, this question from the audience says, transportation is such a huge part of the climate puzzle. A few years ago, you pledged to have 150 to 200 hydrogen fueling stations in the state by 2010, a target that looks virtually impossible at this point. What's the status of the hydrogen highway? Well, the status is very good. We are building hydrogen stations. It's, uh, it was very difficult, for instance, this year to put it in the budget, but we squeezed it in anyway. So we have an additional, we put an additional $6 million in there so we can continue building our hydrogen highway. As you know, my goal is to have, uh, you know, enough hydrogen fueling stations so that you can drive all the way from Baja, California, all the way up to Alaska and go also go to Canada, to the Olympic Games without ever having to worry about refueling and that we have all those fueling stations. So that goal will be achieved while I'm in office and we are working on that, uh, you know, and... Uh, Uh, but you always have to push, you know. And, uh, but I think that the hydrogen fueling stations are very important components so that the car manufacturers can't say, well, we don't have enough hydrogen stations, therefore it doesn't make sense to build hydrogen-fueled cars. We want to have both. As a matter of fact, Terry Tamanen has one of the great hydrogen-fueled uh, uh, cars, and he is driving around, and he's having a great time with it, and he always finds a fueling station. So our goal is to have them all over California. 
The auto companies have promised those cars for some years. In fact, in the 1990s, the CEO of General Motors promised production hydrogen cars by 2004. And some skeptics of hydrogen think it's this mirage out there that looks pretty and never seems to arrive. What would you say to that? Well, as I have said, that Detroit must do a better job in developing these alternative fuel vehicles. I have been to Detroit, to to General Motors. I remember in 2000, if I'm not mistaken, and we were looking at the Hummer. And I told them then already that the H3 ought to be a hydrogen-fueled car, that since the H1 is known as being this big gas-guzzling kind of a car, Let's do the H3 to kind of counter it a little bit and come out. It would be a great thing to have that have no uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. They said, well, technologically, it will be very difficult and very challenging, but within the next eight years, they will be able to do that. Well, now it is eight years later. That should, now they should come off the assembly line. Imagine what a huge hit it would be right now where the oil price is up. And, you know, they haven't gotten there yet. I hope they will get there because uh, it will be to the benefit of the car manufacturers because American car manufacturers are right now down. And they're down because they're still living in the past. They're still building these huge SUVs as if it is year 2000 and the oil prices are down. But, in fact, times have changed. And now the foreign car companies are beating the American car companies again. And it saddens me to see that. Because there's no reason they knew that the writing was on the wall, that this is going to come. And I think that was the big mistake of uh, this administration, to protect the car manufacturers and to fight us when it comes to the tailpipe emission standards and all this. They didn't in federal government, the EPA didn't even give us the waiver so that we can regulate our own air. They refused to do that, and we are in court because of that, because they wanted to protect the car manufacturers of Detroit. And we've been fighting them, and I'm going to continue fighting them in court no matter what level of court we're going to go. We're going to keep fighting them and fighting them until they start protecting the car manufacturers because that will inspire them then to produce alternative fuel vehicles, and then they can be winners again, and everyone in America is a winner. Our guest at the Commonwealth Club today is California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. We're discussing sustainable energy. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, A little plug. We could do that here, too, at the Commonwealth Club. (laughs) Earlier this month, the car companies received $25 billion in low-interest loans to build cars that California tried to encourage them to build almost 20 years ago. Do you think that the taxpayers, again, should support the car makers in making these clean cars? Well, you know, I don't mind if the tax dollars is being used for research. The federal government uh, has money available, billions of dollars, for research and development. So, you know, the federal government should give the car manufacturers that money and say, develop something, and here's your goal. You have to have, within the next 10 years, this product. But that's not what happened. You see, 10 years ago, 8 years ago, 5 years ago, they had the chance to give them that money, and that, let's say if they would have given them $3 billion for research and development, that $3 billion would have now turned into $30 billion because we would have now alternative fuel vehicles, electric cars, hybrid cars, and hydrogen cars, all of those different vehicles, but they didn't. It was a mistake. Now we are coming in on the end. I always I think it's good we have bailed out Chrysler in the past and it was a good deal. I think if it is done the right way, it can be done. But I just think mistakes have been made, and I hope that the next administration sets specific goals and says, here's where we want to be 10 years from now with our, what kind of fuel that we use, how much drilling that we do, but the nuclear plants, the, the, you know, the, the, all of those kind of things uh, I think ought to be looked at again. Do you think a new president, either McCain or Obama, will grant California what it wants and allow the California plan to become a national standard? Well, I I don't think that is the most important thing. What is the most important thing is that if they don't grant it, that they adopt our standard. Because then we have the same California standard all over the country. That is the ideal thing. Because... Because I have talked to McCain, and McCain says, look, we shouldn't have every state have a separate standard. And I say, I agree. 
have our standard. <laughs> then we don't have to have every state have the same standard. And that's the direction that he's thinking of going, and that's what I endorse. But if they don't do that, we want to have our own standard because it is very clear that the courts have already made a decision on, on a lot of those areas that, first of all, that the greenhouse gases are pollutant. I mean, think about it. That this administration has gone to court to tell in court that it is not a pollutant. So now the court said, no, it is a pollutant. They say, oh, really? I mean, uh, I mean, hello. I mean, anyone that you ask down out there on the street will tell you it is a pollutant. So, you know, so now we go to the next step. And, it, and, and we have, of course, waivers have been granted to California several times before. So it's not new. All we are asking is, and this is an, a, another friend powerfully bill that she wrote, the tailpipe emission standards. Uh, all we are saying to the government is, that, look, if you want to screw up the rest of the country, go ahead. This is your responsibility. It's sad, but it's your responsibility. But we are in charge of California. And we want to clean up our act, and we want to move forward in a clean way. Give us uh, the, the, you know, the waiver. And let and grant us that right to go and, and, and determine what our future is going to look like. So that's what we're fighting for. A related issue is land planning, and we have a question here uh, saying that land planning will be essential to California and the country meeting their emission goals. So what kind of changes can be made in the way land is used? Because right now, sprawl creates a lot of the transportation that creates the pollution. Well, I, I think there's a lot of people that are working on that right now. This is smart growth. I think this is something that we have to address because it really will cut down a lot of greenhouse gases if people don't need to drive that far, and if you bring things together. As a matter of fact, there is a bill by Daryl Steinberg, by Senator, Senator Steinberg, as you know, that, is, that, I, that I will look at and review very carefully, um, that deals exactly with that issue. And uh, the important thing is when you, uh, it, it will be a huge bill, an equivalent on the level of an AB32. The important thing is, again, is that it is written the right way, that is, includes all the different aspects, and if there is a mistake, that we go and, and, and try to look at it again next year. But I'm going to look at that bill very carefully because, in principle, I love that idea. But looking at how we use our, you know, how we build in the future in this state in order to reduce our greenhouse gases. <laughs> A lot of the American dream is based on having your own backyard and having single-family homes. So is this really going to, land, changing land use is going to change the way Americans live and the way they work? And are citizens ready for that? And are you as politicians ready to lead people to, to change the way more density uh, in cities perhaps, less, less of a backyard, less of the suburban landscape? Are we really ready for that? How's that well, um, first of all, one thing we know for sure that what has happened in the past, the way we have used our, our you know, the, the, the way that land use was, was done and granted was a mistake because we have sprawled. We have gone out too far. That is okay when we have public transportation to all those places, but we, which we have not. And so there's a lot of driving going on. I think things have changed the last 40 years. Since I've come to California, I remember it used to be that there were the, all the freeways an endless amount of lanes. There was no, almost no traffic jam anywhere. And there was this freedom of build your home anywhere because you can get there within a half an hour. That has changed. Now that half an hour has become an hour and a half because of the traffic jam and because of, you know, us, first of all, not having built enough freeways. And second of all, we have not kept up with our public transportation. And thirdly, because people have built so far out there. And some people are getting stuck in traffic. They're getting more and more angry, wasting more and more time in traffic rather than being with their children at the playground somewhere or watching them playing soccer or spending time at home with doing their homework or something like that. So there's a lot of mistakes that were made, and we have learned from that. So now what we have to do is shift gears, and we have to look at the new challenges. That's why I'm into building more roads. That's why we passed all the infrastructure bonds, $42 billion in 2006. And that's why we have to do more infrastructure, because our infrastructure is outdated. But we have to go and look at the land use and bring the homes and everyone back in again and give people an incentive to build closer to homes so we don't have to drive those distances. Uh, one of your peers, uh, Utah Governor uh, John Huntsman, recently put the state workers in Utah on a four-day work week, partly to reduce the driving. Uh, are there some sort of creative solutions like that that you might consider? 
of course, my administration has always been very creative, as you know. And uh, uh, we have done exactly the same thing when we had, uh, when the oil prices went up, and we have done the same thing when we had traffic jams and the, the freeway was rebuilt near Sacramento. We immediately switched over and we let state employees uh, stay one day a week at home and work on their computers and, and do their work at home so they don't have to drive. So I think this is always good to be flexible in those areas. And then you have to find a good balance. How do you keep people motivated at home and do their work uh, without having someone over, looking over them? Uh, and, uh, you know, how do you get the same performance but not have them drive as much and use the freeways as much? So there's, there's, we have to find, that I think, that good combination. number of questions about green jobs. And this question from the audience is, what specific actions will your administration take to promote the green economy and create green jobs? Well, I think, first of all, the most important thing for an administration is to inspire people. When we have to inspire the people have been, whatever we have done, uh, have been our greatest partners. And all the stuff that we have accomplished in our administration is because the people participated in it. And I think it is important to let the people know that they themselves can really participate and make a tremendous impact on our state's goals. So when we talk about the reduction of 25% of greenhouse gases, we are talking about that you can literally, even though we are setting a goal that we are going to do that by the year 2020, you can do it literally within a year. I mean, think about it. If you just go and wash your clothes uh, with cold water, because the detergent that we have now is, is such that you can wash your clothes with cold water, you don't need hot water. That will save right there a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of uh, carbon output. And you can go with the kind of vehicles that you drive, for instance, or putting solar on your roof, uh, or turning off the lights and not letting the lights burn, or turning off your air conditioning. There are so many things, as I've said, when we talked about when the oil prices went up, the kind of things that people can do by just checking the engine, having the engine tuned, how this reduces and, and you know, helps you by 5% and how far you can go with your vehicle or having the right tire pressure, even though there was this common joke and everyone laughed about the tire pressure, that's okay. Let them all laugh about it. But let me tell you something. I have tested my own vehicle. It helps you 6 to 7% of having the right tire pressure, sometimes to 10% having the right tire pressure. So let everyone laugh, but I bring down my costs by 10%. That's perfectly okay. So those are the kind of things that people can do to really participate and to cut down the carbon footprint. You mentioned solar roofs, and we collected some questions with our radio partners at KFOG in advance, and one of their listeners, Mark Regao, asked, what more can be done to make solar uh, panels more affordable? There is the Million Solar Roof Initiative, which has some tax credits, uh, but some people still feel that these new technologies, hybrid solar panels, are still beyond the reach of average consumers. So what can be done to get the price down? Well, that's why we gave an incentive, a financial incentive, so people who put a solar roof on, they get a rebate. Uh, and uh, that will help them. And therefore, now when we build the, sol the million solar roofs, um, it will bring the costs down because it's like the cell phone effect. I remember when I had my first cell phone, I paid $1,600 for the cell phone. It was a huge thing, and uh, there was kind of a radio-operated thing, and it was very primitive. And then it all of a sudden came down to $1,200, then to $800. I just bought one uh, for my daughter for birthday for $59. I mean, think about it. Now anyone can afford the cell phone, and they have it now in the third world countries, in the developing countries. It just has spread like wildfire because the more cell phones you produce, the more the costs come down. So that's the same thing with the solar. That's why we did this incentive program, the Million Solar Roof Initiative, so that we go and start building and, uh, and develop the million solar roofs, and, and that will bring the costs down. So I would say within the next five years, the costs will come down tremendously. But there's all kinds of other great things that are going on, like PG&E, which is one of those power companies in like Southern California, Edison. Uh, I think power companies a lot of times get the beating. But let me tell you something, something that those guys have been absolutely terrific, and they've been great partners, because they've gone out there, and they are now making, uh, you know, forming agreements with uh, landlords that own huge warehouses, uh, you know, that are millions of square feet, to build on top of them solar panels. Now imagine the kind of warehouses we have all over California if they all would have solar panels on top there. Those are the kind of programs. Now the owner of this warehouse all of a sudden gets lease, gets extra rent 
for having something on top that they never really anticipated of having. So they get extra income. It is beneficial because that electricity that comes from that solar goes right to the grid. You don't need any power lines, any transmission lines, which is a big benefit again. And also it's great for the energy companies and for the people. So it's a win-win situation. So those are the kind of things that are going on when it comes to solar. And all of this will bring down the costs of solar panels. You mentioned companies that sort of get it and see this opportunity in this. There's still a lot of companies in California and around the country that think that this is a burden, it's going to cause extra expenses, cause them to change things. What do you say to those companies who still see this as a burden and expense rather than an opportunity? Well, you know, everything in the beginning is an expense, but the question is when you look at the, the numbers, and you see, when you look at it 10 years, you will find out that by, by 10 years from now, you've paid back the solar panel and the solar roof and everything, and you now forever are going to have a benefit because your electric costs are 50% less. So I think that's a great investment. And I think people just have to look at it carefully, and they will see, and the end, it's always a great investment. And you're participating in cutting down the greenhouse gas emissions. I, uh, we put them on our home in San Francisco, and I love to watch the meter go backwards. So it's a sunny day here in San Francisco, and I'm making money selling electricity now sitting here talking to you. Um, to, um, one question is, to help reduce emissions, isn't it essential to curb pollution at our ports? You know, absolutely. I think that uh, we are doing that. Uh, we are stepping it up. And we are in, uh, as a matter of fact, there's a bill right now that we are looking at that uh, has extra container fees uh, in order to use that money to go and reduce the, uh, the pollution at the ports and to uh, redo the various different equipments and vehicles that are at the ports. And also, we have already passed laws that uh, you know, make it impossible for ships to use the dirty fuels uh, that polluted the ports also and to plug in and use electricity uh, to uh, light the, the lights and create the energy for the ships. So there's all kinds of work that is going on, absolutely. But I think that I want to have Terry Tamanen just say a few words about that because he has been looking at that for a long time and working about how to reduce pollution uh, in the ports and the, what the impact that it has. Certainly, Governor. I mean, one of the things that your administration has done that's just been terrific is to really focus on that connection between goods movement and, uh, and air pollution and uh, try to find ways to speed up the delivery from the ports uh, into the inland container areas and back out across the country because 40% of all the goods that come into America come through our ports, especially in Southern California and also here in Oakland. Um, and so speeding up the delivery of that reduces wait times. Uh, the Air Board has passed rules about not allowing trucks to sit there and idle because a lot of times they would just sit there in long lines and idle, so simple things like that. Also changing, uh, uh, when you first came into office your very first year, uh, you uh, restructured the uh, smog check fee in such a way that it saved consumers money from their annual smog check but actually generated $150 million in permanent funding to go into the Carl Moyer program, which is used to help trucks and other sources of diesel pollution retrofit to cleaner fuels, and that also improves air quality around the port. So I think the real issue, the real point is that there's a lot of things that one can do, but in many other ports in the country, they just haven't made the connection between goods movement and air quality and then sat down to work through all these issues as your administration has done. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Terry's the former, uh, is current energy and environment advisor to our guest today at the Commonwealth Club, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, we know that in California and the United States, we can't solve this alone. And there's a number of questions about other countries. Uh, first, how does the California government plan to work with the government of Mexico to implement its environmental protection agenda? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think it's very important that when we, for instance, meet with the border governors at the Board of Governors Conference, that's one of the issues that, that, that we address all the time and how to help each other with environmental issues. Because remember one thing, that when it comes to uh, environmental issues and the pollution, there is really no border. That just goes across. That their water, if it's dirty water, comes to us. We, our pollution, our air pollution goes to them. I mean, there's really no border. So this is why it's very important for us to work together. And this is why, because a lot of those issues are federal issues, we brought the, the Mexican border governors to Washington to talk to the leaders there in Washington, including President Bush, and also they had me come down to, with, with the American governors, come down to Mexico City and talk there to Calderon, 
and to talk directly on a federal level because a lot of those issues, environmental issues, are federal issues. So we are working together. And uh, again, the important thing, there's a will, that we have the will to help them they, they have a will to help us, and I think there has been really a great, great working relationship between the two countries in that area. But the important thing when it comes to other countries is, is the big mistake that the United States has consistently made is by just always saying, you go first. We are not going to go and do the implementation of you know, reducing greenhouse gases because it will be a disadvantage to us, and then you go ahead and not do it. We should lead. The world is looking at America for leadership. And I think as we have seen in California, how we have, since we have implemented our reductions uh, and, and are working on it, we've seen 10 other states are doing the same thing that were as far away from ever wanting to go there. But we talked to them. They've seen that it does not damage our economy, that actually the green technology is growing and is booming in California. They've joined on, and there's another 10 now that are going in that direction. As a matter of fact, we see a tremendous growth now in America and also with other countries like Canadian provinces that did not get the cooperation on the federal level, but now as a province, there's two provinces that have joined us. They're from Australia, they're joining us. European nations are joining us. So we, and this is what our conference that we're organizing right now in November is all about. Let's not have, uh, you know, uh, the Chinese, the federal government, you know, kind of wait for America to show leadership and America to show leadership in, in China. Let the states, the provinces of China that are interested in reducing uh, uh, pollution, let them come to us and we from governor to governor, from state to province, let us negotiate and start working out kind of agreements and kind of a blueprint for the federal government so they can learn. Because in the end, I think that uh, the federal government always looks at the local. The real action for any new ideas is always on the local level. So they should look at us, what we accomplish in our next meeting, and use that again for their next conference. And this is how we can push the agenda forward. I think this is where the action is. But if 50 states negotiate with a bunch of Chinese provinces, couldn't there be a, the patchwork of regulations you talked about earlier? No, no, we are united. The United States, the states are united. It's the Western Climate Initiative and all this different. We, have, we are in sync of what we're looking for and uh, what our goals are. So we have, they're, they're all, you know, all looking in the same direction. And what we want to do basically is together talk to the Chinese uh, leaders, uh, to the provincial leaders. And with, the, of course, with the consent of the federal government, but the federal government endorses that, actually. They like that when we get together, because this way they don't have to get stuck in politics, uh, you know, the, between the fight between, uh, you know, China and the United States. We on a local level can actually do a lot of work, and that's what we want to do. It's like uh, Tony Blair said to me uh, two years ago, we got to go and attack this problem from every angle possible if it is city to city, state to state, every way that we can in order to move the agenda forward, one thing we should never do, and that is to accept a no for an answer. And I think that's what this is about. I, I was in China this summer, and people there say, we know this, we want to do this, we need money, we need technology, we can't afford this. Are, is California willing to offer technology and actual money to China? To well, no, not money. I think that uh, technology, uh, <laughs> we, we are... We would like to ask China for money right now this year. <laughs> Let me tell you something, the way things are going. Uh, but it, it, it's very simple. That's why I was over there at the trade mission, to go and to bring our producers and manufacturers of solar panels and the different technologies that we have to offer in California. And we have the best of the best in the world to offer. We brought them on a trade mission to China. We had them all meet the, the various different, uh, you know, the, the, prior, the, the, the various different industrialists and, and also government officials. And I think that a lot of good things came out of that. And we are always ready for more because we want to share this technology. It's not secret technology. We want to share it. We want them to, to go and partner with us in some things for us to build some of the manufacturing over there. The key thing is that we help them clean their act and really help them reduce the greenhouse gases. There is a tremendous amount of willingness in China. But like I said, you know, they are growing so fast. This is such a huge challenge for them, as much as it is a challenge for us. I mean, look at the United States. We still, right along with China, we are the biggest polluters in the world. And we still, on a federal level, have not yet said, OK, we got to go and set this goal and reduce our greenhouse gases by 20 percent or 30 percent, whatever the goal might be. Absolutely no goal there. So, 
you know, we got the lead. That is the important thing. And then the rest of the world, I think, will follow us. We've reached the point where we have time for just two more questions. Uh, the first question is, will you come back next year on AB32's third birthday and meet with us here at the Commonwealth Club? He just wants me to say the line from Terminator, I'll be back. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this is about. Yes, of course I come back anytime. I love coming here and talking to you. And, you know, I just want to say that to all of you, I'm one of those governors that doesn't like to just sit around in the office at the Capitol. And I want to be connected with the people. It's the people of California that have sent me to Sacramento. It's very important, no matter what we do, if it's budget negotiations, if we talk about environmental issues, if we talk about wanting the people to vote yes on Proposition 11, or whatever it may be, I think it's important for the governor and for political leaders to go out there to the people, to have town hall meetings, to let the people ask questions and to be candid about it and to be free about it rather than have a scripted thing going and, you know, you only come out with your little press conferences and the people never see you. I like being out with the people. I've always done that in bodybuilding. I've always done that when I was promoting my movies uh, to be connected with the people. And that's what I like about this job. This is a, a job where you serve the people of California, and I want to be connected with the people, so I enjoy coming here. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Our thanks, our thanks to California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger for his comments today at the Commonwealth Club of California. Now this meeting is adjourned.